welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people, for all people. My name is Evan, and this week I learned, on top of everything that's going on in the news right now, that the Golden Gate Bridge has officially become the world's largest wind instrument. Stephen and Kelly, anything you learned this week? Well, I, uh, well, I had some pretty good conversations with many different people in my life um, this, this past week. Um, I thought it was really interesting talking with my mom um, and my grandma as well, who are both immigrants from Peru. And just kind of learning, um, to sum it up, like learning their immigrant mentality on everything that's going on and trying to <laughs> trying to understand things from their side of things, from their point of view, while also like trying to educate them on what's going on currently. So I thought it was very educational for me, but also for them. So it was like mutually educational. Yeah, it's good to have those talks. Uh, Kelly, I, I think you had a similar talk with the, your parents, huh? Yeah, I had a talk with my parents because um, my mom saw me posting something on social media about what defunding the police means. And I basically explained that it means investing in things like education, community organizations that actually address the root causes of poverty. Um, and it turns out that they, despite being very conservative, were like in total agreement. So um, <clears throat> my dad actually expressed interest in figuring out how to get involved in advocating for policies that advance educational policy in the state of Washington. So we're kind of scheming to figure out how we can actually do that. So hopefully um, something happens in that regard. But I think if you really get down to the root of it, most people are in favor of um, supporting community organizations um, that provide opportunities in underserved communities. And it's not something that's, I mean, my dad was like, it's not something that's left or right. Like everyone should be supporting education. I'm like, great. Yes, we absolutely should. And so I think that actually has a lot to do with um, the guests that we're talking to today. Um, Keelan Blackwell, who's the founder and president of Chicago Eco House. Yeah, speaking of learning things this week, I'm trying to learn how to plant a garden in my backyard. We're, uh, we're working on vegetables and herbs, and I think we have someone that could help me with that today. <laughs> uh, Keelan Blackwell is the president and founder of Chicago Eco House, whose mission is to train inner city youth in sustainable social enterprises to alleviate poverty, essentially giving kids the opportunity to learn about sustainability in uh, neighborhoods where they might not be able to learn that kind of uh, information. So, uh, Keelan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, good morning to everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, I know I already mentioned Chicago Eco House, but we're going to back it up a little bit to start it off and uh, just kind of paint a picture of uh, where did you grow up and uh, when did you first kind of get interested in, in sustainability? Uh, yeah, so I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin, born and raised. Um, you know, so like growing up, I was in like Cub Scouts and I think like that was kind of like my first introduction, like the outdoors, the environment. Um, but you know, I really didn't start developing a passion specifically for sustainability until, you know, much later when I, you know, moved to Chicago, I was going to ministry school. Um, and I was like, you know, looking to make a career change at that time. I actually started working in the biodiesel industry. Um, you know, my job was to, like, procure yellow grease, which is basically, like, you know, restaurant grease at, uh, you know, restaurants in, you know, any city. I mean, we would, you know, collect that and then refine it into biodiesel. And I think, like, for me, the thing that really uh, piqued my interest about sustainability was sort of 
looking at it through the lens of, you know, sustainability as a business, right? Because I think, like, a lot of times we talk about environmentalism and it's usually just through a public policy lens, which obviously is, you know, very important and we need to do. I never really thought of, you know, advancing sustainability through business and entrepreneurship being just as, you know, equally as important as, like, public policy. Yeah, so you were, you mentioned that you moved to Chicago to make a career change um, to get into biodiesel. How did that come about? Um, yeah, so, you know, I was a community organizer for, like, the first 10 years of my uh, career. Um, you know, so, like, my dad, you know, like, he would spend a lot of time in his, you know, doing, like, volunteer work and, uh, you know, doing organizing in his free time after work. Um, and he was the one who really, like, introduced me to you know, really doing, you know, sort of more intentional community organizing efforts. So, you know, back in, uh, you know, back when I was like 16 years old, he introduced me to Saul Linsky, you know, by giving his book called Rules for Radicals, which was like one of Saul Linsky's like, you know, manifestos, if you will, on organizing. Um, and it's like, for me, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, like I was like, oh, I didn't know you could really, you know, start putting strategies and tactics and that there's like a real, uh, you know, intellectual profession behind doing community work. So, um, you know, I really got into, like, you know, helping to organize communities uh, in, you know, as a college student at UW-Madison. Um, you know, we did a lot of work around, you know, trying to alleviate, you know, prejudice and racism issues. Um, and then, you know, after that, I went to the Peace Corps where I started doing more community development work. We would work with uh, farmers and rural communities, and we helped to organize them into uh, co-ops uh, where they could sell like organic fertilizer. And then after the Peace Corps, you know, we you know, I came back to the to Wisconsin, and I was working from Milwaukee, uh, organizing residents around affordable action. So you know, I was like really, I guess, neck deep into you know, sort of like organizing community development. But you know, I kind of got burned out. Uh, you know, by the time I moved to Chicago. It's a lot of work, you know, you're really giving a lot of yourself. Um, and, you know, to be quite frank, quite as I was getting older, um, you know, I needed a way to make, you know, make money and have a more stable career. So, um, you know, that's what was the, really the impetus of me making that, uh, that career change, you know, when I moved to Chicago and started going to ministry school. Gotcha. So, you, 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 this is Stephen here. You, you touched on a couple of, of different educational backgrounds that you had there. So, you mentioned, like, college, you mentioned Peace Corps, you, missed, you mentioned ministry school, and all these things are like such, um, they're kind of like, um, I'm sure that they've each contributed to the way you think about the world now. So, um, you know, thinking about your time in Peace Corps in Thailand, when you were working on um, community development there with the One Village, One Family Project, what, what was that like? And how, if at all, did the race affect your experience there in Thailand? Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's a very good question. Um, so it's very interesting, especially, you know, being an African-American in Thailand. Um, you know, so when I signed up to be in the Peace Corps, you know, like they give you uh, a choice in terms of like what regions you want to go to. Um, and, you know, generally the most popular region, region is Latin America. You know, that was like my first choice. Um, that's just because, you know, everybody wants to learn Spanish as a second language. Um, you know, but like there's really no spots open at that time. So, you know, I was like, hey, well, if I can't go to Latin America and, you know, pick up Spanish as a language, you know, let me try to go somewhere that is like the polar opposite of the Western world. And, you know, for me, like that was Asia. So I applied for the Asian program and, you know, it placed me in Thailand. And, you know, I think like, you know, my experience there, 
you know, kind of affected me in a lot of different ways. I think, you know, one, it really sort of changed the way I kind of looked at race and culture, you know, because like as an African-American, you know, a lot of ideals around race and culture is like heavily shaped within the American context. And, you know, when I was in Thailand, um, there's a lot, you know, like there is more about nationality and ethnicity than necessarily race, you know, so... Even though you know I was black, you know I'm you know I'm an American, so my American status actually carried way more weight than necessarily my race. And you know it was just kind of weird being a you know being in an environment where you know people would kind of cater to you. I mean, kind of, you know, we talk about white privilege. I mean, I experienced like American privilege there. You know, like people will come up to me and be like, "Oh, you're like Michael Jordan. You're like Kobe. You're like Tiger Woods." You know. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. I wasn't like ready for that. I'm like, oh wow, this is totally different. That's wild. You know, so I think like you know, for the first time in my life, it like kind of got me thinking a little bit about my identity outside of like sort of this you know Western American context, um, and it kind of made me realize just how you know fluid you know identity and culture can really be. Um, you know, and you know, I think I also like really learned a lot too. You know, in terms of like my appreciation for entrepreneurship, because you know. Um, in Thailand, you know, like, especially in the, in the villages, you know, pretty much everybody's an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? Like, whether you're making your crafts, whether you're working the rice paddy. Um, and I think, like, the thing that really, you know, moved me was just sort of seeing that, hey, you know, even though, you know, it's a developing country, even though, like, a lot of people here are, you know, kind of, you know, living day to day, but, you know, you didn't see homeless people. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't, like, this hardcore poverty that you would sort of see, you know, say, like in American cities, Right. And I think it's just because, like, it wasn't necessarily just about pure economics, you know, like, there, there's, like, this community, uh, you know, sort of galvanization that, you know, we don't really see in the States. And I think, like, you know, for me, it was like, huh, this is kind of interesting, if, like, really, like, what if you basically could combine, you know, sort of, like, that community spirit around, like, a business? Because that's kind of, like, what they had in Thailand. You know, maybe then we can really begin to address a lot of these issues in a way where, you know, even if you know, someone that have not, they're not necessarily, like, out on the street and, like, totally disconnected from society, you know what I mean? Right. So speaking of the the poverty that you see in these American cities, um, after you moved back from Thailand, you and your wife Hannah decided to move to the Englewood neighborhood of Chicago. What tempted you to do so? Um, yeah, so for, uh, yeah, so Hannah was, like, working on the west side of Chicago at the time, and living on the west side. Um, for me personally, it was really more, I was more motivated by, well, both of us were really motivated by our faith, you know, so, you know, growing up in Madison, it's a mostly white community, so, you know, like, I really wasn't that familiar with the inner city, you know, um, so when I was in ministry school, I started volunteering at a high school here on the south side of Chicago, and that's where I really first got acclimated, you know, to, like, a lot of the inner city issues, and I just, you know, just really felt like God was really challenging me at that time, you know, to essentially... I guess, like, lay down, you know, sort of my privilege as an affluent, you know, black man and to, you know, dedicate my life to, you know, basically uplifting, you know, my people in the hood. Um, and, you know, at the time it was, uh, you know, like anyone else, like, you know, first when you're coming, it can be very shocking, you know what I mean? Like, when you see the vacant buildings, you see the blight, you know, you see, like, you know, um, like everything's just, like, out in the open. Um, so, you know, at first I was really wasn't sure if this was something that I wanted to do, but, you know, I just kind of, you know, when I was working with the students at the school, um, you know, I think like the big thing was like, when I would, you know, I would look at them and be like, Hey, you know what? Like this could have been me, you know, like I'm no different. I'm no better than the kids I'm working with. 
Um, you know, for whatever reason, I was just kind of born into a family that had some resources, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was like, yo, if I was in this position, like my students at that time, I wish somebody in my shoes would basically come and, you know, use the blessings and privileges that they had to help me out, you know. So that kind of what really got me over the edge and, you know, put me on the current path I'm on today. I guess so. You mentioned a bit about the volunteering work that you did when you were in ministry school, but how did um, what you learned in ministry school and your faith affect your worldview and your approach to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so, you know, like, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, and, you know, I think, like, uh, you know, in the Christian faith, there's this whole idea that, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? And, you know, I kind of looked at myself, you know, you know, especially in ministry school, as like, hey, like, I've been I've really been given a lot, you know, like I grew up in a nuclear home, you know, I had a very strong dad in the household, um, you know, like we basically had like a Bill Cosby kind of upbringing. Um, at that time, I just sort of felt normal because like any kid, you know, like whatever your environment is, you know, you're not really thinking about these like larger societal issues. You just think like, oh, everyone else is going through this. Um, so I think like, you know, I really began to <clears throat> realize just how, unique and fortunate my upbringing was and how, you know, being raised the way I was was gave me like a significant advantage in life. Um, and, you know, I just really felt like, hey, like, you know, what, what do I want my life to be? Like, okay, I've been given all these blessings, you know, like I'm reading in the Bible that like, yes, there's going to be, you know, I'm going to basically be judged at a higher standard because I've been given so much. So how do I essentially want, you know, my life to be, of the, you know, like, what do I want my legacy to be? What do I want my impact to be? Um, and, you know, I think, like, that's really what has, like, really shaped the way I look at my work, you know, because, like, for me, this isn't just, like, a job. It's not just work. It's, like, my, my lifestyle, you know? Like, we're all in. I mean, I live here in Inglewood on the south side. I'm raising my kids here. You know, when there's gunshots in the block, like, you know, my family's just as much as risk as, like, the, my neighbors. So... Um, you know, I really just feel like, hey, like, as a Christian, if I'm, like, serious about doing, you know, the Lord's work, then I ha- it has to be 100% of me, you know, that I can't, you know, basically use my privilege to distance myself. You know, like, I live in, say, Hyde Park or Lincoln Park in a nicer neighborhood, and, you know, maybe I'll come down into Inglewood, you know, but, like, as soon as 5 o'clock hits, I'm out. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want that kind of dichotomy in my life, because I feel like, you know, that's not the example that, you know, Jesus really said or, you know, his followers. Right on. And I, I just want to chime in and say, like, I can totally relate to that, um, to that the, the things you mentioned about, like, faith and, like, motivating your work and, like, thinking those, asking yourself those questions about, like, what do you want your life to, to look like? Um, I, I work in, like, in the, in the clean energy space as well, and that's um, a huge part of my motivation day-to-day as well, as well as a lot of my coworkers. So, yeah, it's, it's really cool, yeah, to hear you, to hear you talk about that. Um, yeah. You're going to have to interview yourself on your own podcast, you know? <laughs> uh, they, they, they hear enough of my voice. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you already kind of uh, started to answer this question, but uh, moving on from uh, ministry school, how did you decide to start Chicago Eco House? And how did you, like, move yeah. from ministry school to, like, organizing your community around sustainable education, business, and opportunity? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, in 2014... Um, you know, like basically we're trying to figure out, well, what's the best way to really serve our community? Um, so, you know, we really spent that first year in 2014 just doing, you know, essentially research because we're like, Hey, we don't want to necessarily come in and just reinvent the wheel. 
So we basically talked to like a lot of other community activists, a lot of other nonprofit leaders, um, business leaders, and we wanted to just like, you know, since we did our research and try to see if we could find a gap that we could, you know, solve. And like the one thing that kept coming up was sort of entrepreneurial and vocational opportunities for at-risk young people. So, you know, once we sort of identified that as a need and a niche, you know, we are kind of like, hey, well, sort of look at our expertise, you know, like, hey, for me personally, you know, I know how to do community organizing. You know, we had a passion for sustainability. So I was like, hey, well, what if we could, like, merge the two? You know, like, what if we could basically build a sustainable, you know, urban ag enterprise and marry it with, you know, a viable community, a broad-based community organizing approach? Like, what could that look like? Um, and it took us a few years to get the kinks out of that. Um, but, you know, like today, we essentially have our off-grid flower farm model uh, where, you know, we use solar-powered rainwater catchment irrigation systems uh, that, you know, drives water to our flower crop. Um, you know, we have our uh, in-house flower shop called Southside Blooms where we'll pick the flowers that we grow and then do the arrangements and, you know, sell them uh, at market. Um, and all throughout this process, you know, we, we have our uh, education program. So we have our K-3 program where we partner with schools and we'll have students come on, you know, onto our farms and we'll teach them about urban agriculture and flowers and bees. And then we have our workforce development program, you know, where we work with like, you know, 16 to 24 year olds and train them how to be flower farmers, train them how to be florists. And then Southside Blooms is basically the end point where they can actually get hired on, you know, and have a career with us in the floral industry. So it's really designed to be, you know, a pipeline, you know, so much like what you see in sports, you know, say like with football, we got like Pop Warner football and then high school, college or pro football. That's what we're really trying to build here, you know, for the flower industry uh, in the inner city. And really the longer, the bigger vision is really, you know, like what if we could basically turn the inner city into, you know, uh, you know, the flower capital of the world, right? So I think of like, you know, Napa Valley, for example, out in California, you know, if you go out in Napa Valley, you know, you sort of really see how the wine grape industry has just like sustained that entire region. And, you know, but it all starts just with these wine grapes, right? So we're like, hey, well, why not with, you know, a flower? Like, you know, we have plenty of vacant lots, like there's literally hundreds of acres of vacant land in Chicago, predominantly concentrated on the south and west side of Chicago. So, you know, let's just use what we already have. You know, grow it as a cash crop instead of just doing it for, you know, purely beautification. And then maybe we could, you know, one day have an industry, you know, on par with like a Napa Valley, you know, and that can bring like great wealth and restoration and really close some of these historical socioeconomic gaps between African Americans and, you know, white people. Um, that's really awesome. So um, I've heard a lot about um, urban agriculture initiatives to grow food. Is there a specific reason why Southside Blooms grows flowers rather than food? Yeah, that's a, yeah. So, you know, in the beginning when we first were like really uh, getting connected with our community, um, a lot of people would, you know, ask us like, hey, you know, like, why are you like pushing flowers? Like you can't eat a flower, right? And, you know, for us, it was um, really just about the economics. So, you know, some fun facts about the flower industry, you know, 80% of the flowers that you see on market actually come from overseas with, you know, about two-thirds of that coming from Central and South America. You know, in the United States, the entire floral industry is valued at about $35 billion a year. So we're like, hey, you know, if we're just going to do this straight from more of a business approach and not necessarily 
a quote unquote due justice approach, um, you know, this is really where the opportunity is at. You know, so it's not so much that we're against food, but, you know, like when you're kind of working in an urban environment, it's actually very hard to compete directly with, you know, big ag in the United States. Um, you know, when you're just like growing on a small scale, because there's only like so many crops you can grow, you know, viably, you know, um, and your market's a lot smaller. I mean, if you're like trying to grow food, maybe, you know, you focus on something like microgreens, you're trying to sell the chefs, but, you know, that industry is like hyper competitive. Whereas flowers, we have thousands of varieties of flowers that we can choose from. Um, you know, the market's wide open since most of it is imports. It, it, you know, basically, we have an inherent competitive advantage, so we're able to sell our flowers at a lower price than our competition, which also adds to the appeal of it. And, you know, we're like, hey, this is something that has, you know, big bang potential, you know, because um, we didn't just want to start something that, you know, maybe 10 years from now, you know, we have like this small business that's making only like 100, 200 K a year. We really wanted something that had the potential to become a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And flowers really just look like the roadmap to do that. That That's awesome. You know, I, I love to hear, my gosh, like I'm, I'm, I'm fired up right now. Like I, I'm obsessed with entrepreneurship and hearing you, hearing you talking about, you know, these like, you know, going for that market share, talking about that price competitiveness, like competing with like an open marketplace. Like that's awesome to me. Like, um, so you mentioned um, on your on your website, you you mentioned there that initially you were kind of starting off with grant funding and started transitioning to a business model. Um, can you expand on like what went into this decision? What it was like to start making the business financially sustainable? Like um, thinking about leasing real estate and then like thinking about the cost of leasing versus how much are you selling things for and things like that. Yeah, so yeah, we kind of want to nerd out on sort of the business model. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, this is very you know fascinating stuff to me at least. Um, yeah, so you know, most nonprofits have like you know kind of a, your basic service delivery model, right? You know, you, you solicit donations or grants, and then you like provide some sort of uh, social service. Um, and you know, for us, you know. Um, I think like, really the impetus for us, of, you know, trying to figure out a social enterprise model is like for me personally, I didn't want to spend, you know, the next 20, 30 years of my life begging for money, you know. So for me, it was really more about empowerment and like, hey, how can we basically use a nonprofit structure to facilitate a for-profit model so that ultimately you're having like economic liberation, not just for our communities, but, you know, for me as a founder, because, you know, like when, you know, that first year of 2014, when, you know, we were, uh, you know, interviewing a lot of activists and nonprofit leaders, like one of the common themes that we sort of saw were, you know, these people who were like, you know, executive directors and founders, been doing this for 20, 30 years, and, you know, they're still stressing out about meeting their budgets every year, you know, and I was like, dude, I don't want to be like that, so, um, you know, once you start getting a little more, thinking a little more outside the box, um, and like, really just looking at nonprofit as not so much a quote-unquote nonprofit, but really it being a tax-exempt structure, that's when, you know, kind of really began to open up things for us. So, you know, we started thinking, like, hey, well, what if we basically use the tax-exempt nature, you know, of a nonprofit to, you know, attract donations and grants, and instead of just using that money uh, in a traditional sense for, you know, delivering uh, social, just purely social services, what if we were to instead look at that money as, say, investment capital, and we put that into infrastructure? In this case, infra- the infrastructure would be building farms, and, the, you know, with the idea of, like, providing these programs. But, you know, we then would pair that 
with, uh, you know, this for-profit business model where we they can, like, grow uh, a product, in this case flowers, you know, on these farms that we're able to basically, you know, subsidize with grants and donations. So then we can basically offset our operating costs. So now we kind of have this, like, creative model where, you know, the tax-exempt nature of our organization is, like, basically, you know, driving growth and expansion of infrastructure. Because anybody who's in business knows, you know, it's like those initial startup costs that can be the most daunting. So this is a way to get around that hurdle, you know, so we don't have to, like, go to a bank or get some, you know, big, rich investor. And, you know, we're using the for-profit model to cover our operating costs and our overhead. So it gives us more, you know, financial resiliency. So when something like coronavirus hits, for example, you know, we're not laying off, you know, a bunch of people. And I think, like, you know, what happened with COVID-19 really highlights, uh, you know, the wisdom of this approach. Because, you know, like a lot of our nonprofit peers, unfortunately, like lost massive donations, you know, had to, like, suspend programming or lay people off. Some of them had to shut their doors. But for us, like, you know, we've been, you know, super prosperous financially. I mean, we're actually having our best financial year. You know, That's so awesome. mainly because we've been selling out of our flowers. I mean, you know, we in the spring we had our, you know, all of our flowers sold out for our spring bouquets. Right now we're doing our flower CSAs. You know, we're already over 200 CSAs sold. And, you know, like our first CSA, uh, you know, isn't going to be delivered until July. So we've still got the rest of this month to sell them. You know, so we're like racking up, you know, money by the tens of thousands just through flower sales, you know. And during a pandemic where, you know, a lot of other people are like going out of business. So I think, you know, this is an example of, you know, why hope will, you know, kind of be a more, I don't know, best practice, if you will, in, in you know, sort of the nonprofit community, you know, where people start, you know, embracing a for profit model instead of just thinking, like, hey, I have to rely exclusively on donations and grants. Well, thank you for satiating the business nerd of the podcast. Uh, I'm sure Stephen has never been happier. <laughs> so uh, not to flex too hard on the research we did prior to the episode, but uh, <laughs> in the documentary, A Full House, produced by a group of Northwestern <laughs> University students about you guys, um, you mentioned that you and Hannah spend a lot of time thinking about your lives from the end back, which uh, and use that as a guiding principle, like, how you uh, choose to live your life now, which I thought was incredible because that's a trick that screenwriters use when writing their uh, screenplays. And I mean, <laughs> it really hit home with me. Uh, so where did you obtain this mindset? And how did you think this mindset could benefit the U.S. during these uh, tumultuous times? Uh, yeah, that's a very pregnant question. Um, so let's hear. So in terms of how, you know, I got that mindset, is actually a professor in college you know, like, kind of like most college students, I was just like, you know, didn't know what I want to do with my life. I was, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry to go for this job, that job. And then he just asked me, uh, hey, Keelan, you know, like, well, <clears throat> you know, whatever you want to do, if you can accomplish it within your lifetime, you thought too small. You know, and that just, like, stuck with me. So I was like, huh, I never really thought about that. You know, I never thought about my life being sort of interconnected with, like, other generations. So that's really the point he was trying to drive is that, hey, you should really look at the contribution that you want to make in your life, you know, being something that isn't completed until maybe the generation or the generation after you, right? Um, so, you know, a very easy example, like, say, Martin Luther King's dream. You know, like, he didn't necessarily live to see the fulfillment of his dream. But, you know, people like you and me are enjoying 
you know, two, three generations later, are enjoying, like, sort of the full manifestation of his dream of, you know, I mean, it's not perfect yet, but compared to, like, when Martha King started, you know, we have a lot more equality, we have a lot more diversity, you know, you know, races are mixing, you know, segregation has ended. So, you know, um, that was, like, really the impetus of that. Like, okay, well, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, you know, however decades from now, you know, what do I really want my life to be within the larger context of, you know, say, human history? You know, like, and, you know, what do I want, you know, like, whose shoulders am I standing on? So for me specifically, um, you know, I really look at my life being connected to, say, the Booker T. Washington, the George Washington Carvers, like, you know, the great, you know, the Madam C.J. Walkers, like the great African-American sort of social preneurs who came before me. Um, and then, you know, hopefully, you know, through my life, I can really just sort of advance their work, advance their contribution to set up the next generations of, like, you know, black and brown socialpreneurs. So um, that's where I kind of, you know, uh, that's how, you know, that's what that really means to me. In terms of uh, how it can really speak to today's times, I think it can really help people to, like, think outside of just, uh, you know, what's in front of them, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, so I was like a history major in college, and, you know, I think, like, a lot of times you get so caught up in the here and now, you know, that we sort of lose sight of, like, the larger picture or we lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is the first time we face social upheaval in this country and that, you know, there's actually been a lot of other times in this country where that social upheaval was a lot more violent, a lot more intense, and, you know, we, we you know, came through those times. So, um, you know, I think, like, it gives hope to the idea that, you know, okay, even though things are a little troubling right now, even though things are a little tense, there's a lot of, uh, you know, drama, um, that, you know, that, that sort of like that human spirit and that American spirit is really one of, you know, driving for like a common freedom, common purpose. Um, and that like, you know, if we begin to think about sort of like, you know, what's going on today and the way we're living our lives and setting up the next generation, um, you know, that can, you know, really start to, at least what I hope is inspire people that, you know, hey, well, the, the, you know, say the protest I'm doing today, uh, the work I'm doing today is not even necessary for me. I may not be the primary beneficiary, but maybe my kids, maybe my grandkids. That's, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> no, no joke there. That's beautiful. So, um, you know, one question, you know, obviously we, we are in some, some interesting times, um, some, a lot of uh, pressure being applied to society and a lot of uh, problems still exist in society. Um, one question that that I'm asking myself, and I know a lot of people are asking themselves a lot now, is um, how can non-black allies help support black community leaders such as yourself? Do you have any any notes on that? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think you know. So I think like like that blackout. You know, the fancy this past week, like no blackout Tuesday or whatever it was. I think you know the spirit behind that is like really good. Where it's like, hey, let's sort of affirm and acknowledge sort of black-led, brown-led businesses and organizations, right? Um, and I really think, like, in terms of, like, long-term uh, long uh, sustainable change and long-term sustainable support, um, you know, basically supporting, you know, black-led initiatives, brown-led initiatives. Um, so in our case, you know, like, hey, you know what? I love donations. Don't get me wrong. But I'd much rather keep you have a, or have you as a customer. That's like, say, buying our flowers year after year after year. You know what I mean? Because, like, that's going to, you know, really help us to achieve, like, our long-term, you know, initiative. Because, you know, for a lot of people, donations just, uh, you know, a one-time, maybe a two-time thing. But, you know, when you start looking 
um, at black and brown led, you know, organizations and leaders, um, you know, as like, you know, being, you know, being a, a people in places that are providing enduring real social and economic value, and you can participate in that, you know, by just supporting it, say, financially through purchasing products and services. I mean, that's really the best way to help accelerate, you know, at least on the economic side, our growth and change. Um, I think, like, you know, on more of the social side, um, you know, I read this, you know, post on uh, on Facebook, you know, by a white lady where she basically said, hey, every white person should do this exercise, like go into a predominantly black or brown neighborhood, you know, go to a grocery store, go to the gas station, whatever, and, you know, the, the, you know just make sure you're the only white person, go there and shop and see how you feel, you know, um, and she just said for herself, like going through that experience, she never felt so aware of her difference, her otherness, right? Um, and I think like that exercise, like a lot of white people can really help to, you know, give empathy to people of color, you know, because like for us, we have to go through that every day. But for like a lot of white people, I mean, like it's a shocking experience. They never really had to be in a position where they're the only, you know, white person, where they're the minority within someone else's world. Um, so I think like that's a great way that they could, uh, you know, that people could really help and be supportive, um, you know, because in that way, I think you can really engage uh, these conversations a lot differently and hopefully with more humility and empathy. You know, a lot of times you get like this, you know, virtue signaling and, you know, it doesn't, in my opinion, it's not, you know, very constructive towards, you know, sort of really trying to achieve like social justice and like true equality. Um, you know, so I think, you know, when people begin to like kind of go through those experiences themselves and they really see like what they're up against and how hard it really is, um, you know, that, you know, hopefully they'll kind of come in and, you know, just be a little more humble and come under, like, black and brown leadership. So, uh, yeah, I really think those are, like, a couple of ways that people can really support as allies. Yeah, I think I've seen some quotes about, like, how the heart work is the hard work, and the most important thing in the long term is kind of to do a lot of self-reflection and think about your own place and your role in our society as it relates to race, social justice, and just, like, I think the way that social media exists now is not really conducive to doing um, that kind of self-reflection. So, I totally agree. Yeah, so um, the last question that I had was that, so um, Southside Blooms has been incredibly successful in Chicago, even in the midst of COVID, you've been selling out of your production. Um, so how do you envision that this model could be expanded to other cities around the country? Um, and that's definitely one of our ambitions. We definitely want to become like a national uh, you know, organization at some point. Um, you know, we don't, we're still trying to figure out like what that could look like, but I mean, I think like, you know, kind of like broadly, uh, we would want to be in other cities that are similar to Chicago. So, you know, places like Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, Milwaukee, um, you know, where there's, uh, you know, inner cities with a lot of vacant land with, you know, uh, you know, African-American or Hispanic populations, um, and, you know, basically kind of like, you know, set up our model there. Um, you know, just since we're still like really establishing our footprint in Chicago, we don't, you know, currently have like the infrastructure to go to other cities, but it's definitely something we want to do. Because, you know, obviously there's a flower market everywhere. Um, so, yes, like that's definitely, you know, I would say in our like, you know, three to five year plan is beginning to take what we've done in Chicago and start to replicate in other cities around the U.S., all right. Well, uh, I know we've definitely gone over uh, 30 minutes, but if you have any more uh, time to spare, Keelan, uh, we'd love to play a, ki- a quick uh, 
game with you we like to call the Peak Demand Round, a segment with quick questions and quicker okay. answers. Yeah, I'm game for that. All right, awesome. All right. To start it off, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think my animal is a honey badger. Um, the reason why I like the honey badger is because it's the most fearless animal in the animal kingdom. You know, it's small, but do not underestimate the you know, ferocity of a honey badger. Like, they will take on a cheetah, they'll take on snakes, you know, like, they don't care. Um, and I think, like, that's really the spirit I try to embolden is, like, you know, regardless of how big the challenges are or how outnumbered we may be, um, you know, we don't let fear succumb, you know, we don't succumb to fear. So definitely the honey badger. If you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Um, I mean, outside of Jesus, I would say... Booker T. Washington is someone I would love to have mm. dinner with. Um, and if I could, you know, also throw in George Washington Carver to be a guest there. Um, and that's just because, like, I'm, like, very inspired by their work. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with them, you know, these are the people who started the Tuskegee Institute in, like, the late 1800s and sort of the, you know, rec- reconstruction era of the United States in the South. You know, they're down in Alabama. Um, and, you know, they really... Uh, you know, really pioneered the idea of like vocational training and job creation for African Americans, um, you know, using agriculture. So they, you know, George Washington Carver developed all these great innovations, uh, the soybean and peanut. Booker T. Washington did a great job of like, you know, you know, sort of like mustering and, you know, marshalling the resources needed to drive like black education in the South. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of historians will give credit to their work as sort of laying the foundation for, you know, the civil rights movement later, because like a lot of African-Americans who were leaders in the civil rights movement, um, you know, got, you know, educated in schools that were either started or supported by uh, their work. If you could talk to a version of yourself that's 10 years younger, what piece of advice would you give yourself? (laughs) Um, Yeah, if I had to talk to a 25-year-old Keelan, um, I think, well, two pieces of advice. One, you know, sort of lay off the Pizza Hut. <laughs> you know, way too many stuffed crust pizzas back then. Um, and I think, secondly, it would be, uh, you know, just like embrace embrace the journey, you know. Because um, I think I was like very, you know, like most young people, uh, you know, I was, you know, in a little bit of a rush to, you know, kind of, you know, get things done and make a name for myself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I really just didn't enjoy the ride. And I think, yeah, you know, like life is just one big ride and I just learned to settle in and, you know, just enjoy the day to day of life instead of feeling like I have to just work so hard to just hit these milestones. What's something you used to believe and no longer do? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, so I would say, you know, kind of going back to the health thing. I used to believe when I was uh, younger, um, you know, that, uh, you know, sort of eating like, you know, sort of like the health foods, right? The, you know, so like the lean cuisine, microwavable products and, um, you know, like they have like the sugar-free or fat-free cookies. I used to think like, oh, this is like the standard of a healthy diet. And it really wasn't until I got, you know, deeper into agriculture I began to see the difference between, you know, sort of the processed, quote-unquote, healthy foods um, or even, like, you know, the, the supplements and vitamins that, you know, people recommend 
uh, versus, you know, just eating like real food, like having real eggs, you know, growing your own vegetables, your own fruits, and, you know, just seeing the, the, the difference in the quality and, you know, really understanding <clears throat> that, you know, like, you know, not having like the pesticides and herbicides and the difference that makes in your food and how like the flash freeze, the flash uh, freeze like veggies and stuff and that really depletes the nutrients. So um, I definitely see the value of having my own food. Like I have chickens in my backyard. I get fresh eggs every day. Um, you know, we grow our own vegetables. We have bees on site, so we get honey. And, um, you know, yeah, definitely like really believing in like, you know, real food that you grow yourself um, instead of like what, you know, some marketing agency is telling you is real food. What's your favorite climate solution and why? Oh, that's a very good one. Um, I think my favorite climate solution is sort of, you know, sort of distributive uh, renewable energy. Um, That actually gets me very excited. Um, I think like a lot of times people talk about like solar and wind sort of like in, uh, you know, like this sort of broad utility sense, right? Like, hey, you know, you got like a nuclear power plant, so you know, we need to have, like, this massive solar, you know, panel power plant. And I think there's, like, a place for that. But I really think the power of, you know, renewable energy as a solution is that it can be small-scale, it can be nimble, and it can be distributed. Um, and I look at, like, you know, like, what we're doing on our farms, you know? Like, we just literally have a $800, you know, solar panel kit that's providing enough energy to drive our irrigation. We got like our three panels up there. We connect them to some car batteries, and it's like serving its purpose, right? It allows us to do some, drive some economic activity. Um, and I think like we're gonna see more of that. I mean, you know, you look at like say electric cars. I mean, it's becoming more common for people to have electric cars to say, you know, get solar panels set up on their garage, and you know, it's literally just there to you know power their electric vehicle, right? Um, you know, or even like on a smaller scale. I mean. You know, it's becoming more common for people who are, like, in the hiking or camping, you know, to have, like, these sort of, like, you know, solar solar panels on their backpack so that as you're hiking, you're collecting solar power, and that night you sort of use that to, like, say, charge your phone or whatever else uh, that you're using. So, um, yes, I, I, I just love build that, you know, we as human beings can basically use, like, you know, renewable energy to become our own little micropower plants. So now we're going to move on to the uh, existential introspective portion of the uh, the peak demand round. Uh, first question of those is, when have you failed? That's a good question. When have I not failed? Um, <laughs> I've failed a lot in my life. <laughs> so, you know, this, so, so Eco House is actually like my eighth or ninth uh, attempt at a business. Um, so, you know, like one of my bigger failures was like, you know, Back in like 2011, 2012, I was trying to start this metal supplies company. Um, and, you know, like, you know, it was like me and a couple other partners. Um, and I think like we just, you know, spent a little too much money up front on supply without or inventory without making sure that we actually had like reliable customer base at first. Um, you know, so, you know, we ended up finding out that, you know, we didn't necessarily have a, as much of a market that we thought we would have, and we were kind of stuck with all this inventory um, and that we couldn't sell. So, you know, the thing ended up flopping. Um, but, you know, like I said, that wasn't the only business. I mean, you know, even before that, there was a time I was trying to, like, flip iPods. I mean, I've, I've done all sorts of things and failed at all sorts of things. Um, but I think the thing that, um, you know, I kind of know looking back um, is, you know, I really kind of look at it as, 
you know, like in agriculture, there's this idea of cover cropping where, uh, you know, you basically plant a crop uh, that specifically has a purpose of, you know, quote, unquote, failing because it's going to provide more nutrition and make the soil more ripe for your cash crop, right? So I just look at all those failures as basically like my cover crop that then made the soil really ripe for Eco House to bloom because, like, I learned all sorts of lessons through all those, those failures that I now can apply to Eco House and House I bloom today. Yeah, I really love that um, cover crop analogy. I've never thought about it that way before. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so I hope it's very helpful to, like, your listeners and stuff because, you know, like, I definitely know, you know, I mean, I had my thoughts of feeling like, man, am I really cut out for this? You know, because you fail and, you know, I feel like society doesn't have, like, the healthiest perspective on failure, but when you look at, like, nature, I mean, you know, things, like, there are a lot of things that grow with the specific purpose of dying, that something else can grow from that, you know? Um, and that just kind of, like, helped reset my paradigm. So, yeah, hopefully that's very helpful to, like, you know, you guys and your listeners. And lastly, uh, to, to finish off the peak demand round, what gives you hope? Um, you know, what really gives me hope, um, I would say, is just sort of seeing the way people will rally together around a good idea. Um, you know, so I think, like, you know, like we've been seeing the last couple of weeks with, you know, Black Lives Matter really being at the forefront and people really, uh, you know, sort of seeing the realities of, like, say, police brutality and, you know, sort of the day-to-day racism. But, you know, just sort of when I look at, like, the protests, it's not just black people out there. You know, it's, like, extremely diverse. I mean, to the point where there's, like, Black Lives Matter protests in places like Fargo, like North Dakota, you know what I mean? It's just all white people saying Black Lives Matter. Like, that kind of stuff gives me hope, you know? Um, I mean, I know, like, life can be, like, a battle and there's, a lot of challenges that we face, but it does seem like, you know, when you look at the, you know, the other side, if you will, and you sort of see, like, the good ideals, you know, over time tend to, like, rise to the top. And I really do think it's, like, those core values of, like, freedom and unity and liberty that, you know, speaks to every human being, because ultimately that's what we all want for ourselves. So that's what really gives me the most hope in humanity. All right, and with that answer, we wrap up the peak demand round. Uh, now, we usually end uh, these shows with a, a segment we call the Green News Spiel, which basically we, um, I ask Stephen or Kelly to provide a news article or just something they've, uh, they've heard about uh, recently that uh, kind of imparted something uh, to them. So is there any news article, any column, uh, anything you've read recently that uh, really, really spoke to you? news article that was that the title of it was you know after five uh it was uh you know oh i remember yeah white people are tired after five days of opposing racism you know it's kind of like this satire piece you know about you know like hey you know these white people go out there protesting and you know trying to oppose racism and now it's like man this hard work is tiring can we just get a glass of wine, cheese, and, like, kick back and relax, right? Um, and I think, like, you know, the article just really spoke to me because it kind of speaks to what I, you know, hope will not happen, which is, you know, like a lot of our white, you know, white people are kind of being awoken to the realities of racism in our country, you know, won't just think that this is just like a, you know, a quick and easy fix, right? Because, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, sort of the modern-day social justice movement is, you know, it's, it just feels like it's like this microwavable, you know, fast food kind of thing where, you know, someone sees an injustice, you know, people kind of get 
you know, all frothy mad and, you know, hit the streets. But, you know, a week from now, they're on to something else, right? And I'm really hoping that this time it will be a little bit different, that, you know, you know, white people in particular will begin to actually start having some of those deeper conversations, start doing a little more introspection, and see that, like, hey, if I'm going to be really part of the solution, this is going to require me making some serious changes to my lifestyle. All right. Thank you, Kaelin, for your Green News spiel. Uh, Stephen and Kelly, do you want to do uh, ours after the call? Oh, I actually have a really good one that oh, okay. I um, found that's relevant. So um, there's this article um, that I'm that I read in Energy News Network called "How a Climate Plan in Minneapolis Fostered Racial Divisions." So um, Minneapolis, um, seven years ago in 2013, adopted an action plan for global warming, and it, at that point they essentially leapt to the front of the urban climate movement. But unfortunately, in the planning process for that, they absolutely did not take in the input of any. Um, low-income communities or communities of color and tacked on environmental justice as kind of an afterthought. And a lot of the leaders in that community are saying, like Minneapolis, despite being a leader in providing green spaces, um, most of these parks and green spaces are um, concentrated in uh, wealthier, more affluent, whiter neighborhoods, whereas um, tree cover is a lot harder to come by in low-income, particularly black neighborhoods. Um, And when things like um, climate change happen, like in heat waves, the um, lower income neighborhoods can actually end up being about 12.5 degrees hotter than the more affluent neighborhoods that have this tree cover. And a climate plan that doesn't address these inequities is not a inclusive climate plan that addresses even like, because climate change, ultimately, the reason we care about it is because it impacts people. And we need to really think about how inequities will exacerbate the impact of climate change um, and that the climate movement isn't immune from racism by any means and we need to really put environmental justice at the forefront of it. So I thought this article is really interesting because they specifically um, highlighted Minneapolis which has come under um, a lot of scrutiny as a supposedly progressive city that um, still has a lot of demons to, uh, with regard to racism to address. Stephen, do you have a green news spiel? Yeah, yeah, I could um, bring one up. I, it's not so much a specific article, um, but I think I w- I'd like to, to do a shout out to, um, I've seen the corporate community really come out in response to Black Lives Matter and all these protests, which um, I thought is, I think is really cool because corporate America, to some large extent, defines what is normal in society. Um, and there's this whole idea of professionalism and trying to keep politics out of the business realm um, I see it a lot on LinkedIn too. Um, people post a lot about, you know, certain certain professional stories or their new job acceptances, but usually it's not not about politics. But I've seen so much like a, a pure flooding of people coming out, um, and a lot of non-black people as well coming out and saying that Black Lives Matter. Um, and I thought that was um, really powerful. Um, just seeing that that shift is happening even within the the power structures that we have. Um, in this society and specifically wanted to call out if you hadn't seen it Ben and Jerry's statement on Black Lives Matter it's incredible I've never seen such a pointed and aggressive statement by a corporate uh, corporation and I think it's great I mean it's it's really on point and they seem to really care so um, I'm hoping that this is because I think of America as a very corporate nation that, that capitalism is at the center of it and profits over everything and the fact that so many corporations are stepping out, I, it gives me hope that this will actually be actually be sustainable and meaningful change um, in the future as well. But that being said, I don't think we should 
um, take that lightly and, and sit back on our heels. I think it's time to kind of keep pushing hard on this, on this topic and make sure that we have policy and law changes from this. All right. Well, with that, we wrap up the Green News Spiel and we wrap up the show. Thank you so much, Keelan, for agreeing to spend your Sunday with us. I don't think we could have asked for a better interview, honestly. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. It was great talking to you guys. Yeah, great talking to you as well. Cool. Um, so my last question here was going to be, it's already something you've kind of already answered, and you know, I'm proposing we move this to the end of the, of the episode, just so, to end it on this note. Proposal approved, Stephen. But I wanted to maybe provide a space here for you to maybe do like a, a final call, like, you know, a call to, you know, come do some business, you know, come by, be customers of yours, um, and we could maybe splice it in at the end of the episode. So, yeah, so I guess I'll kind of pro- propose a question. So, again, like, how, how can listeners support the work that you're doing at Chicago Eco House and Sideside Blooms? Yeah, so there's really two ways you can help us. Um, you know, one is by just, you know, donating to Chicago Eco House. Uh, you know, kind of like I was saying, you know, we really use donations to support uh, our, you know, infrastructure costs. So, you're, you know, you donate to Chicago Eco House, they'll basically go directly to us building new farms in Chicago on vacant lots and turning them from, you know, blighted spaces into, you know, beautiful, profitable, uh, sustainable social enterprises. Um, you can do that by going to www.chicagoequalhouse.org and then, you know, going to the donate uh, button. Or you could, you know, if you're in the Chicagoland area, you have friends or family in the Chicagoland area, go to southsideblooms.com and you could buy flowers, you know, either for yourself or as a gift. Um, you know, currently we have our CSA going until early July. So, you know, our CSA is $150 for four flower bouquets to be delivered July, August, September, and October, um, and with delivery included. So it actually comes out to about like $37.50 per bouquet, and these are large bouquets, which is an astounding value in the floral industry. All these flowers are flowers that are grown right here in the city of Chicago. So, um, yes, go to southsideblooms.com to buy a flower CSA or a flower bouquet for yourself, friend, family member, and we'll deliver it to them. Or you could just simply give a donation at chicagocost.org. 